North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Blog Talk Radio. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. You've tuned in to Dr. Low Radio. I'm Dr. Noel, and thanks for joining me. I'm actually recording this show on location in Colorado for the holidays, and I'm excited to say that for the first time we're going to have a gluten-free Thanksgiving. Now, my mom has always catered to me and done gluten-free for me, but after being obnoxious enough over the last couple of years, we are going gluten-free for the whole family. So I'm super excited. Hopefully all you guys are doing well and spending uh, some time with your loved ones during the holidays. I have been traveling a ton. Just got back from Portland for the ACAM conference. It was a great conference all about diabetes and a network with some great doctors from all over the country and also booked some really great guests for upcoming shows. So... Uh, Jeffrey Bland is going to be on the show, and Jonathan Wright, and Mark Houston, a really wonderful cardiologist, so just a few. Um, Let's see, before I introduce our guest for tonight, I want you guys to mark your calendars for next week's show. I'm really excited to kind of change up topics. Uh, Next week we'll be having raw vegan Kevin Gianni on the show from thehealthrenegade.com. He's an, an internet blogger, and we'll be talking all about the power and the benefits of raw food. So really excited to kind of change it up and uh, just talk about food as medicine for a while. The next week, for the first time, we'll be having Evelyn Lambrick. She'll be hosting the show, and she'll be interviewing me. We'll be talking all about PCOS, that's polycystic ovarian syndrome, and a lot of women have this and don't even know it. So you may be thinking, oh, I don't have that. Well, you never know. It's actually a leading cause of infertility in the U.S., and it's on the rise. So join me as I discuss the naturopathic treatments for this condition, and on the show you'll learn a lot of really great solutions for that. So that's in a couple of weeks. Make sure to check out the website, drlaurennoel.com. I offer free initial consultations both in my San Diego office and via phone and Skype. So if you're out of state or out of the country, no problem. I'll go to the website and we'll get you on the schedule. And I want to preface this show and for every show, as you guys know, we have a lot of types of guests on the show, a lot of difference difference in opinions and views. You know, one guest might be a vegan, another might be an advocate of full-blown cave, you know, caveman diet, another one might be pro-endurance training, another is about interval training. So really what I love to show is just so much information. You guys can keep your minds open and take it in and decide what, what works best for you. And it's, your mind is like a parachute. I mean, and it's corny, but it works better when it's open. So I encourage you to keep your open mind and just you know, be critical in your thinking and, and find what works for you. We'll be taking your calls tonight as usual, 818-495-6919. That's 818-495-6919. And I do my best to check Facebook too, facebook.com slash Dr. Low Noel, and on Twitter at Dr. Lauren Noel. Tonight we're discussing botanical medicine for menopause. Joining us is an expert in this realm, someone who I've looked up to for several years now and since before I was even in naturopathic school. I had the opportunity of shadowing her with her own patients, and I saw firsthand her genuine love for her patients and in promoting the field of naturopathic medicine. So all of the naturopathic doctors really have a lot of respect for this woman, and so many patients have been helped by her throughout the years. We have Dr. Tori Hudson joining us. Dr. Tori Hudson, she's a naturopathic doctor. She's a 
graduate of the National College of Naturopathic Medicine in 1984. She served college in many capacities throughout the course of her career. She's currently a clinical professor at NCNM and Bastier University, and she's been in practice for over 27 years now. She's a medical director of A Woman's Time, which is a clinic in Portland, Oregon, and director of research and development for Vitanica. Dr. Hudson was awarded the 1990 President's Award from the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians for her research in women's health, and more recently, the 1999 prestigious Naturopathic Physician of the Year Award. She's a nationally recognized author. She's written the book, The Women's Encyclopedia of Natural Medicine, which is a wonderful book for both patients and doctors. She's a speaker, an educator, a researcher, and a clinician, and we're very lucky to have her. Dr. Tori Hudson, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Or Nice to hear your voice and be on your show. Yeah. Not too long ago I was in your office just shadowing you. That's right. That's right. There you are, all grown up down there in San Diego. All grown up, I know. I've spread my wings and I've flown away. How are things going with you? Uh, Very good. Very good. Up here in rainy, rainy Portland, but things are going well. Yeah, things are going well. You, I, I didn't even mention in the intro how amazing of a um, property you have with this just huge stock of, you know, you have land and gardening. And um, tell, tell the listeners a little bit about, you know, your, your area where you live. It's just amazing. Uh, I live on 11 acres, about 10 miles outside of Portland in the foothills and um have a huge, you know, maybe half acre vegetable garden that keeps me busy. And chickens and forest and trails and things like that. But, you know, in tandem with my, you know, high definition television and computer <laughs> and electricity. Right. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but it's a perfect perfect balance for me. Perfect balance. You can't live in Oregon and not have chickens, isn't that isn't that true? <laughs> It is so, kind of popular up here. You know, I, I I learned a little bit about your story, and um, for those listeners who aren't familiar with you or if they just want to lo- know a little bit more about your personal history, what, what got you into becoming a naturopathic doctor and, you know, being the fabulous Dr. Hudson that you are? <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, uh, well, let's see if I can make it short. Uh, I I grew up as a very competitive athlete, um, hmm. and I'm 59, so uh, in the 50s and 60s, um, and that I would say that was, you know, really fundamental to my foundation in taking care of myself. Because as a nationally competitive athlete, that's you know you kind of what you got to do to stay competitive, and that then sort of transitioned into. Um, so I graduated from high school in the 70s, and there was just so many things happening at that time in this country. You know, there was around that that influenced my becoming a naturopathic physician. I, philosophically, I would say, in terms of there was um, the first uh, what do you call it? Earth Day? I believe was 1970 <laughs> when I was a senior in high school. And then there was the uh, what was called the back to the land movement, sort of how I live now. But but people, um, there was a whole movement about you know uh, living on small subsistence, you know, situations where you sort of had your little permaculture and fruit trees and chickens and gardens and things, and self sufficiency was 
Uh, it was especially in a, a New England movement, but there was a, certainly a West Coast aspect to it. And then there was the feminist movement, which was about empowering women and taking care of yourselves, including women learning to do, which includes sort of the self-help uh, movement of you know self-health care, self learning how to do speculum exams, <laughs> you know, all of that kind of. Uh, and I was introduced to vegetarianism, and I was uh, picked fruit, uh, you know, on the sort of migrant worker circuit for a little while so I was exposed to all this good food so all those kind of converged in me and I would say those are all elements of of things that that ended up pointing me in the direction of naturopathic medicine wow and so you've seen this field just totally grow in the last what 20 years How's oh that been? yeah Gosh, yeah. When I was in school, 1980, I started. You know, there was only maybe 25 people in my class, and uh, you know, it 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 definitely at the time was sort of there was sort of two groups of people. It seemed like the real alternative folks from the 70s, and which was sort of my lineage, and then there was the the a more sort of um, people that got to natural medicine via maybe their religion. Um, you know, uh, which had some, you know, a religion that had strong principles and health, whether it was Seventh Day Adventist or Mormon or something like that, mm-hmm. and uh, and then and now it's just and people kind of did, went into it based on pure faith. There was hardly, you know, there was maybe what two licensed states, and you had to pay your own education. There were no student loans, um, so it really kind of drew the the you know a real passionate. Uh, crowd and things have changed via, uh, I would say, largely because the big change was when the U.S. government, the National Institutes of Health, set up the first um, off, uh, Office of Alternative Medicine, which then transformed into the, a national center for complementary and alternative medicine. But that was that first office was key in, you might say. A more more recognition for natural medicine and research, you know, start kind of there be money that was loosened up for research on herbs and nutrients that hadn't been uh, going on before, and just the whole field matured and evolved, and the schools evolved, the education matured and evolved, the profession has matured and evolved, and at least, you know, in, let's say, the state of Oregon. I mean, it would be hard to find a person in Portland, Oregon, that had never heard of naturopathic medicine. Now, mm-hmm. you can certainly find other parts of the country, even California, that haven't heard of it. But gradually, right. you know, it's um, that even if you haven't heard the term naturopathic medicine, you've heard of an herb, you know, or you've heard <laughs> of folic acid, or you've heard of uh, fish oils, or you've, you know... And so all those, and now even that those things are available mass market in in a in a very important way. Um, so I think the consumer that even isn't super geared towards the whole realm of of natural medicine is, uh, by and large, the the consumers still are. Oh, I'm going to take my multiple, my fish oil. I'm going to try to eat better. I'm going to try to eat more fiber. You know, there's those things are have made their way into the minds of the plenty. I think. Mhm. Yep. People are taking the more responsibility for their health, right? Yeah. yeah. Pardon? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was just saying that people take more responsibility for their health now. They're trying, trying to take things into their own hands, which is great. Taking that proactive yeah. 
view of their health, which just makes our job easier. So you've chosen women's health. Driven. Yeah. No, I was saying you you've shown you you have chosen women's health as your focus. What what drew yeah. you to specializing in women's health? Um you know, basically my my patients, uh well at the time when I was, you know, a young doctor, there really was no naturopathic physician that really that was really uh other than a few people that were doing natural childbirth, there really wasn't much happening in women's health in our profession in terms of a focus or people that were really knowledgeable and so when I was I was in a teaching position I was like, Wow, there's no one to look to here. I better I better know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. I better I better get busy. Uh and so uh that's basically it was motivated by need of patients mm-hmm. coming with questions and healthcare problems that that uh there needed investigation and needed some you know attention and focus more than what we were just naturally offering. So Yeah. And I credit my conventional colleagues, you know, there were many conventional colleagues in Portland who opened their minds to me and my questions and and helped you know my were key in my learning curve about women's health because uh it's really uh you know knowing you know I consider a naturopathic physician to have to know all the things that a conventional primary care doctor knows and more mm-hmm. <laughs> uh and what we have to know is you know the diagnosis the cause the diagnostic test the all the clinical manifestations. We have to know quite a bit about the drugs. Uh, in the case of Oregon, we actually have to know about most of them and even how to use them. And then we also want have to know about natural therapies. And, and 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 increasingly, it's not just things that have been around for generations, but research and more research and this study mm-hmm. and that study and this publication. So it's not just relying on some old-fashioned idea of, oh, you know, if you take cod liver oil it's going to do x y and z but actually wow look at this research study on cod liver oil and then look at this other one on other kind of fish oil blend and here's this other one for blood pressure and another one for uh, heartbeats and another one for fatty liver and another one for hot flashes you know so it's just it, now we have this huge body of information to if we really want to help more people more of the time it's on the shoulders of a naturopathic physician to really try to stay up to date with this research, I think. Mhm. Yeah, and you do such a great job at that, especially, you know, flipping through your book, you are very great about citing research and showing studies and, you know, and 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 also keeping it to the roots of naturopathic medicine that some things have been used for a long long time and we know that they work. So, you know, kind of yeah. having that balance. Yeah. Exactly. I like to, you know, rely on the wisdom of history but um but take advantage of modern research as well. Absolutely. So today we're talking about menopause and um in your book, which I think you're 2008, I'm looking back at the date and this one mm-hmm. came out. I'm making sure that the uh, statistics are up to date, but 43 million American women um, are postmenopausal, and the numbers are expected to increase to 60 million by the end of 2020. And by the year 2015, nearly half of women in the U.S. will be menopausal. So this is huge. A lot of women yeah. are. I love that last into this. little. Exactly. I love that last little statistics because it, it's like, whoa, that's 
that's uh, that that makes the men kind of swoon, like, oh my god. <laughs> I know. Actually, when I was prepping for the show today, I mentioned that to my dad because I'm here visiting my family for the holidays, and he goes, "Whoa." <laughs> <laughs> Totally. Yeah. Totally. Better get get women feeling good. Um, so what exactly is menopause? I mean, we hear the term, but what is what is menopause exactly? Well, um, menopause is officially the definition of menopause is not have if you have ovaries is that you have not had a period for twelve consecutive months. That is officially the definition of menopause. Or if you had your ovaries removed, then you would have been suddenly surgically menopausal, and that would be menopause too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think where people get confused is perimenopause. So perimenopause is this transition time. It's kind of like the adolescent version of being a 40-something, 50-something-year-old woman. So your ovaries are now basically waning, you know, in their production of hormones. And in that process, there's there's a transition. It's not just a clean stop. It's the uh, so and that can take, you know, 1 2 3 4 5 up to 7 years usually, a, you know, a transition time. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's subtle and you don't even know it. Maybe your period used to be 28 days on the mark and now they're 26 days. That's and you're 45, that's, you know, that's the beginning of perimenopause for that person. Not uh, the definition of perimenopause or menopause isn't defined by what symptoms you have. Mm-hmm. It other than bleeding changes. So perimenopause is by definition is a shortening of the menstrual cycle. Menopause by definition is the cessation of uh of the menses. And symptoms do or don't occur with 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 those and some women have the only symptom they might have is their periods are changing but other women have mild symptoms let's say they have hot flashes some night sweats a little bit of sleep issue other women have more moderate symptoms either in severity or in scope and other people have severe symptoms and now they're getting panic attacks uh, and let's say, or they're having severe insomnia, or they're having severe hot flashes, and or they're having vaginal dryness and painful sexual activity. I mean, the the list is is you know a bit lengthy, but those are some of the most common symptoms. Mm-hmm. And so many symptoms. Um, so many. I mean, it really affects usually, any system, right? Any system of your body could be affected by this. Well, I'd have to think about any, but but sure, yes, there are estrogen receptors everywhere, mm-hmm. um, and you know uh, maybe a a not so common symptom, but clearly related to perimenopause and menopause is that the voice changes. It can get a little deeper, a little hoarser, a little gravelier, maybe even get a tired, a little bit tired, and that's a function of less estrogen on those vocal cords. And that would be an example of something that people might not know. But usually people know about the hot flashes, the night sweats, the mood swings, the sleep problems, the vaginal dryness. Um, But there are people can get body, you know, sort of aches and pains, kind of like rheumatism. It's not clearly arthritis. It's not fibromyalgia. It's just this sort of achy thing. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Another one that maybe people don't, no exists quite so much as, as dry skin. The skin becomes drier. 
and of course our skin with when estrogen levels drop the skin now ages more because there's less estrogen and if there's less estrogen there's less of something called collagen so the skin is less elastic and thus it wrinkles so that wrinkling you know that we start to see in our face in, in particular is uh has a menopausal component to it of course it has a sunshine component to it a stress component a diet component a nicotine component a genetic component but but estrogen is one of the things that, that especially influences women's skin aging. Hmm. So there's a long list uh, of of uh, uh, symptoms that can happen, and some of us have few, and some of us have many, and some of us have mild, and some of us have severe, and everything in between. Mm-hmm. And what's the typical age that menopause occurs? Uh, the average age of menopause is 51. But average means... You know, it can happen within the norm a few years before and a few years after. Generally, the norm is sort of between like 45 and 55, but but 51 mm-hmm. is the average. Mm-hmm. And and in your in your experience, um, have you seen that there's a, a real like healthy way to transition into menopause, like an ideal way, I guess, or is it just totally different based on the woman? Well, the symptoms are incredibly individual. There's no predicting what will happen. Mm-hmm. There's no predicting what your perimenopause or menopause will be like. There's no predicting how long it will last. There's no predicting you know, what symptoms you will have. The best preparation really is uh, an, you know, the, the usual things, just an optimal lifestyle, but yet because we know some things that can make it worse. We don't necessarily, it's not like, necessarily the eating certain foods or exercising a certain amount makes it so that you won't have a certain set of symptoms. But if you are a smoker, you will likely have menopause earlier, for example. Um, If you have a very poor diet, let's say a really high simple sugar diet, um, you know, white flour, sugars, that kind of thing, um, Mm -hmm. you will likely have more problems with uh blood sugar stabilization and weight gain with perimenopause and menopause because that of the whole insulin resistance issue which gets exacerbated with menopause when estrogen levels drop insulin resistance rises and someone who's been eating a high simple carb diet is already paving a path you know, towards insulin resistance. And I'm imagining that you've talked about that on previous shows. So mm-hmm. if they're already paving that path and now they're menopausal, that path is going to get rockier and they'll probably have more trouble with weight gain. What about, um, now you mentioned a few other things, like you mentioned like toxic chemical exposure. Do you do you see that that can actually increase or I guess um, make the timing earlier for menopause? Well, the only thing I mentioned was nicotine. I'm not mm-hmm. aware of um uh, environmental toxins causing premature menopause. Mm, okay. I'm not I'm not aware of any research on that topic per se. I'm I'm aware of research on environmental exposures uh having some potential influences on fertility and and some 
chronic health problems like polycystic ovarian syndrome and endometriosis, but I don't, and I'm not, um, there are other people in our profession that know a lot more about this research, but I'm not aware of any that talks about early menopause or certainly not more difficult menopause. Because I thought it was really exposures. interesting. You mentioned cognitive scores in childhood and that affecting um, the timing of menopause. You said the higher the score of cognitive scores, the later the menopause. Do you, do you, I, I, do you know I, why? I, that I, I, I didn't mention that. Oh, I'm, I'm looking in your book here. I thought I, oh. I read it here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I, I thought you meant did I talk – have we talked oh, about no, it? Oh, no, no, no. It's listed oh, here. Yeah, it's listed here book. from like – Three years ago, yeah, cognitive scores in childhood. The higher the score, the later the menopause. I thought that was fascinating. Well, those are those are just sort of people reaching for ideas, you know. <laughs> right. I, I don't know how well that one's really panned out. Um, mm-hmm. I don't ask. I mean, I don't think it's particularly relevant because people don't know their cognitive score. <laughs> right. You know. Right. I don't know what mine was, but. Uh, so I think, you know, just intellectually, you know, people are trying to understand is there are there things that determine the age of menopause? And more and there are multiple potential possibilities there. Is my phone still yeah. working? I dropped it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I can hear you fine. Um you know, even um you know, well there's always genetics, uh mm-hmm. and um, but they're still sort of unraveling that, and they're looking at other hormones that we don't usually hear about uh, in terms of Mullerian hormone and in terms of things that might predict the age of menopause. I don't really care too much about that. I just, you know, when I, when I have a patient in front of me, I don't think that's especially, you know, clinically useful, really. Yeah, I think it's important what, to women, useful, though, to, for them to know you know when that's going to happen for them. I think there's a lot of uh there's a lot of fear around this topic for women, you know? I mean from a clinician standpoint it's not so much an issue, but for women they they kind of they're kind of afraid of this just because I think the way that it's portrayed in culture. Wouldn't you agree? Well, I don't I think much much less so than 10 years ago. I don't I I think they just women want to feel okay, you know. Um mm-hmm. it's normal and it's natural. I don't think knowing when it's going to happen is helpful at all. Um, but it's going to happen. It's normal to happen. I usually try to explain to women, you know, that this is normal. This is natural. Right. Um, now we just have to make sure you, we have to do whatever we can do so that you feel good through the process. It's not normal yeah. and natural to not sleep, but this is a n- normal symptom and we need to help you go through menopause as easy, you know, as comfortably as possible. Totally, totally agreed. I think it's important to, to provide that education for patients. Um, what about some of the? So there are increased risk for certain conditions around this time. So what what can women, you know, kind of be more um, in tune with and wanting to make sure that they're getting certain conditions, you know, checked for with their doctors and getting certain labs right. run? What are some of the things you, you talk about with your patients? Well, it's tempting to think that, oh, I'm 50 years old, I need all these tests. I need bone density tests, I need my hormones checked. and you know. But in fact, that's really not the case with most women. Uh, there are certain time frames. For example, every, every woman that's 65 should get a bone density test. But not every woman, in fact, most women don't need a bone density test in their 40s or their 50s. Um, we ha- there are certain criteria if sh- 
that that might mean that it would she would need should have a bone density test but as a routine baseline there really is no good logic for that because we don't know what your maximum bone density was by the time you were 30 so we don't too often really care what it is when you're 50 there are some exceptions to that and there are these red flags people that have had a you know like i said there are certain criteria for which we might do a bone density test and do do them uh before the age of 65 but as a routine thing i would say not that people are very tempted to get their hormones tested and there's a lot of public uh press around that and i don't i usually try to dispel the myths around that uh especially for women that are perimenopausal at the transition time it's almost always useless to check hormone levels meaning estrogen progesterone be in a perimenopausal woman because they change every day so whatever they are on wednesday morning at nine o'clock is irrelevant um because they're going to be different at thursday and at friday and on saturday and it doesn't really help manage the case to know what they are because like i said they are fluctuating and um so there's really I, I really discourage that. There might be some other hormones that we might test, like thyroid or cortisol or, you know, certainly in, you know, or insulin. These are, or vitamin D, which is a hormone. So those things. But estrogen, progesterone, testosterone yield, that's in a perimenopausal woman, I would say no. In a postmenopausal woman, also mostly I would say no, because once you're postmenopausal, guess what? They're low. And they're supposed to be low. Mother Nature had them low. So we're going to treat you based on your symptoms, not on a lab test that we already know is going to be low. Um, But if you're having problems that we can't solve and we don't understand, if I give a postmenopausal woman a hormone cocktail and she's still not feeling better in ways that I would expect her to feel better, and I adjust the dose based on my experience, and it's still not working, you know, there's something that's not making sense at some point. So in that woman, I might test her blood level of estrogen to find out why am I giving her the double the average dose of estrogen, and she still doesn't feel better. Well, if I test her blood, bingo, she's not, you know, it's low and she's not absorbing it through that route. So then we might change how we deliver the estrogen or we might change the kind of estrogen or we might improve some things about her gut flora and her digestion so that she does absorb it. So there, but those are very, those are the atypical cases where Mm -hmm. I need to test hormones. Now, different doctors practice differently, and there's plenty of doctors that test hormones like crazy. I don't agree with that. Uh, I don't think it's a good use of uh, women's money most of the time. But, um, you know, they have their reasons, and they have their things that they need to help make them think through things. But but I I think it's, in general, not a great use of funds. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's say a woman is coming to you and and she is, you know, experiencing some of the typical symptoms that that we've mentioned with with going through this transition. She has some hot flashes, maybe some anxiety, Mm -hmm. some night sweats. Um, What would be just a general approach you'd have to start off with her and then what what could be some things you might try botanically Mm -hmm. to give her some uh, some relief? So you're right. We want to kind of, I'm kind of divvying things up in my mind. I'm going to understand her day-to-day problems and then I'm going to want to know, some about her past 
health issues because we're there's different levels of what I need how I need to help her. I need to help her feel better, you know, her quality of life issues. But I also need to identify if she has any diseases that need treatment, and I also need to identify any things that she's at increased risk for. You know, if she tells me her mother had osteoporosis and a hip fracture, uh, that's a red flag to me, and that I'm going to treat, I'm going to do things differently with her than someone who doesn't have that history and just tells me they have hot flashes and night sweats and they're not sleeping good. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, uh, or or maybe it's breast cancer her risk, or maybe it's heart disease her risk, or maybe she has a family history of Alzheimer's. So those are the three areas: quality of life, disease treatment, disease prevention. So what do you say? Hot flashes, night sweats, and what else? Mood swings. Yeah, let's say she has hot flashes, um, night sweats, and, and, and anxiety. Okay. So um, one of the herbs that's been researched for both hot flashes, night sweats, and anxiety is the herb kava. So I would want to make sure that kava was in my treatment plan because it's been researched for both those things. Now, I might not just have kava. I would probably rely on kava for the ex for the anxiety and I might use an herb that's been more researched than than kava for the hot flash issue which would be black cohosh. So I might give that woman a black cohosh product and a kava product. And so we've addressed, you know, the sort of fundamental issue which is she's going through menopause and then she has these specific symptoms of hot flashes and anxiety. Okay. That would be a simple approach. What about a woman coming in and she's saying, I have zero sex drive whatsoever. I, I, my husband isn't even a man to me anymore. You know, I'm not attracted to my partner anymore. What what are some, what can you do for that? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, that's, you know, women's sexual function is one of the more challenging uh, things to figure out because it's complex. It's not, you know, there's many things that influence her sexual function, and hormones is only one of them. So we have to investigate by question and answer, maybe some tests, to see if there's something else that's influencing this change. If she's hypothyroid, for example, if um, if there's uh, if her, she and her husband just are not close and intimate, you know, emotionally, you know, and they're not connecting, they're having not communicating. There's that. If she's on a medication that might be influencing her sexual function. There's what if she's got fibromyalgia and she's in pain and or got some other condition that causes a lot of problems or fatigue. If she what if she's has sex and it's painful. So then we have to fix the pain in order to fix the libido because most women don't want to have sex if it's they anticipate it's being painful. So all that requires, you know, going through sort of doing due diligence, you might say. But let's say for the purpose of your question that we <laughs> end up it's none of those things, it's just hormonal. That's the only thing that we can really identify. It's a change in her hormones and and a change in estrogen and testosterone do very commonly affect a woman's libido. And there are very few herbs that can really there's very little research. There's a lot of lore and folklore and sort of aphrodisiac, you know, traditions. <laughs> but I don't find that they don't work very well or very often. Mm-hmm. 
though there is a there are a couple things that have a little bit of research like maca maca extract is one of those herbs that has a little bit of research for libido so and that that's the one i usually kind of try to start with first there are some libido herbal formulas on the, in the market i would say if they don't include maca i'm not sure i'd give them too much attention mm-hmm. um there and then we get into what what are some hormones that might help uh, dhea is an over the counter supplement we produce dhea it drops it is in that testosterone category of hormones called androgens and sometimes DHEA can help libido. There's a little bit of research to show that, and there's research to show that it doesn't work as well. The things that tend to work best are estrogen with testosterone, um, doing both of them together in a hormone replacement. Of course, if you have a uterus and you take estrogen, you've always got to take progesterone too. But the two hormones that most affect libido in a woman are estrogen and testosterone. And... To be honest, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Mhm. Okay. And Got it. And uh, I don't. I think we don't. We definitely don't have that one dialed in. Uh, you know, the Chinese medicine people talk about this in some different terms, and so sometimes, you know, I like to send people to a Chinese medicine practitioner that does acupuncture because they can offer a different perspective that b- might be helpful. Mhm. I love acupuncture. <laughs> wonderfully. <laughs> that was actually my very first intro into natural medicine was working at an acupuncture clinic back in long ago. <laughs> I forgot. Funny are often. you did, did you get are you uh no. an acupuncture? No. No, I refer out for that, but I just yeah. I'm just in love with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'll probably have someone well, to talk been... about Chinese medicine on the on the show in, at some point in the future cuz I yeah. I just think it's wonderful, especially for fertility. Yeah. Um You bet. What about vaginal dryness and thinning? That's something that yes. is so common for women nowadays, and it's something they're, they're embarrassed to talk about, and it's so uncomfortable. What, what do you do for that? Right. Well, clearly the best researched and best results come with some kind of vaginal estrogen prescription, and there's several different choices and deliveries there. There's creams, there's suppositories, there's tablets, there's rings. That really is by far and away the best. Now, people get scared of estrogen, but vaginal estrogen is actually something not to be feared at all. This to me, this is like one of the best things going in women's health care is vaginal estrogen. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's not just about having that tissue, having it not hurt uh, or not having dryness or not having some itching, which also comes with that thinning. But once you have those symptoms... That means that tissue is going to get worse with time. It's going to get thinner and drier and narrower and less elastic and less hold up your bladder and more likely lead to urinary leakage and infection. So it's not just a medicine to, so that sex doesn't hurt. It is, it's, I compare it, this is sort of maybe an oddball comparison, but I compare it to like flossing your teeth. You know, you gotta, you gotta do it to prevent the future problems. Um, and to me, it's really kind of a miracle medicine, and um, it is, one could make a case that most women should do it even if they don't have symptoms because that is one of those menopause issues that does get worse with time. Hmm. There are some non-estrogen 
items, but they don't work as well. But uh, there is an over-the-counter drug called Replens. It's not an estrogen. It does have a slight effect, about one-third the effect of vaginal estrogen. Um, some people say, well, if I use vitamin E oil capsules or put some oil in there, that that's great, And but, but it's I would think of it more as basically you're just sort of lubricating the area. It's right. not really restoring the pH and the microbes and the elasticity and the tone, you know, that sort of thing. There is mm-hmm. a hops vagin an herb called hops and there's a vaginal gel in Germany and I don't we don't really have it here. There is a, a couple of cool studies on DHEA vaginally. Um 13.5 milligrams. There's uh that's something I've been experimenting with a little bit, but um, if you really want to get what they used in the study, you have to have a doctor write a prescription for the compounding pharmacy mm-hmm. uh, to make a little DHEA suppository. Um, their herbs haven't really. Uh, I wouldn't hold. I wouldn't. I don't usually look to herbs for solving this problem. Mm-hmm. Although there was a little study on sea buckthorn oil, which is an you take as an oral capsule in this case, and it was for dry eye syndrome. So anything that helps dry eye might help vaginal dryness, because and that's also a lesser known menopause symptom. Is the same issue the mucosal the membranes the tissue is once there's less estrogen there's less lubrication. Dry mm-hmm. eyes, dry nose, dry mouth, dry vagina. All all that can happen. There's <laughs> one big dryness going on. <laughs> so so let's say a woman she she starts doing the the vaginal um suppositories of estrogen. How long after starting can she expect to feel juicy again? Well, we usually do a little loading dose uh, if you're using the, uh, the where you do it every night for a couple weeks, and then most women can go to a twice a week maintenance after that. Mm-hmm. You know, it depends on how severe it was to begin with. If it was mild to moderate, uh, the mild people within two weeks they're going to notice it. The moderate people probably you know within two to four weeks. The more severe people probably within the four weeks, but maybe a little longer. Okay, got it. Yeah, I think it's good to have those realistic, you know, expectations. I'm not going to be, you know, juicy tonight. I need to know just it's going to take a little while to let this build up in the tissues. So yeah, um, which and you know, if they need something immediately, then they're just going to use a lubricant, right? But that's not going to be treating the underlying cause, right? One thing I hear a lot with with patients is they say, I go into a room and I forgot why I went in there. Or I can't remember where my keys are. I can't find my car. So they get this memory brain fog thing. Um, What are you you using to address that with your patients? Well, first of all, that that mild cognitive impairment is considered a normal process of aging, even though we don't like it. There are some, this is a pretty, I would say, satisfying area for natural medicine. Uh, the things that are on my list of things that I like to have in a formulation would be the herb bacopa, um, um, would be something with uh, periwinkle, um, ginseng, rhodiola, uh, phosphatidylcholine, uh, like B12 folic acid. Go to cola. Those are some things that I would would look for. Ginkgo, sort of yes and no. 
Um, and then things that um, a separate item is something called NADH and another one called DMAE. And these are over-the-counter products, or actually they're dietary supplement products, that where there's a little bit of research showing uh, enhanced memory. Mm-hmm. And even with the NADH, with, uh, I think, improvement in function of Alzheimer's patients as well. And I think also with Bacopa, too. I think there's some research with Bacopa and, and Alzheimer's. And I, Alzheimer's I patients. Mm-hmm. I think you're probably yeah. right, yeah. Um, and then for dosing, they can they can get this in your book, right, for some of these herbs? Uh, well, I don't have, no, I don't really have a, pay, uh, a section in the book on memory or Alzheimer's, but uh, so they would have to look elsewhere. I might have something on my blog, drtoryhudson.com. Okay. So all you guys listening, you want to get those dosings, go over to her website, check that out. Um Let's see here. We have some callers in the phone lines. If you guys want to ask a question, go ahead and press 1, I think is the the number to to call in and ask a question. Um, If you're listening from your computer and you want to ask a question, 818-495-6919, 818-495-6919. We're talking to Dr. Tori Hudson on herbal medicine for menopause. Uh, Let's see here. What What are some other just general herbs that you love during this, this time of life that you oh, black use a lot. cohosh, definitely black cohosh for menopause mm-hmm. symptoms. Maca. Um, usually, there's some nice combination products that might have, um, you know, dong quai and burdock and licorice and those kinds of herbs in them. Chase tree berry isn't is more just for breast tenderness, whether it's related to PMS or perimenopause. Uh, or abnormal bleeding. It doesn't really help with hot flashes or things like that. Okay, so chase tree is for breast tenderness, you said? That's what you're Breast tenderness or an abnormal bleeding. Mm Mm-hmm, okay. Um, There's a plant new to most of us called uh, Siberic, I think the, the common term would be Siberic rhubarb. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's available over the counter yet. I know that it can be. It's made available through naturopathic physician offices. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that there's a few studies on that and hot flashes. Uh, so I've been using that a little bit more. Red clover. I think there's six studies. Three showed it worked. Three showed it didn't work. Um, something. There's a couple studies now on hot flashes and fish oils. Um, mm-hmm. So sometimes that's a, an important option, especially in a breast cancer patient. Very good. Uh, but then you have the then you have the end of the specific problem. So those are kind of foundational perimenopause menopause herbs that I just went through. Then there's the specifics. What if she's not sleeping? Well, I might use the maca for the foundation and valerian before bed. Or if she's got anxiety, I might use black cohosh or maca for the foundation because the underlying cause is menopause and then I would use kava or L-theanine or GABA or lavender oil specifically to target the the, the anxiety. So I always think in terms of what's the foundation and then what then target the specific symptom. Makes sense. I like it. And everybody's at home writing notes right now. <laughs> I can see them right now. I'm going to take it over to uh, the Facebook questions. I have a few that people have submitted over the last couple of days. Um, 
This question is from Susie, and she wants to know, uh, what non-soy supplement should a, a menopausal woman be taking to help with weight loss, low thyroid dysfunction, and general health? So you can go for that one first. <sighs> I know, it's a loaded question. Hypothyroid, and what was the third thing? Weight, weight loss, loss low thyroid function, and general health. health. Yeah. Well, first of all, if she's really hypothyroid, personally I would want her to take a thyroid hormone supplement pill and that is going to be important to help her lose weight um, to get her metabolism kicked up into the normal range. Um, You know, there's no silver bullet for pill for weight loss. Um, uh, In a perimenopausal menopausal woman often a part of the equation needs to be not only, you know, increasing metabolism and increasing muscle mass, but improving insulin sensitivity. So that when you eat the starchy carb or you eat the fruit or, uh, you know, even you eat some starchy vegetables, when your blood sugar rises, that you're, we want to have your insulin not overreact and we want to have your cells be receptive to that insulin taking that glucose into the cells so it doesn't get stored as fat. And there are a nice little list of herbs that improve insulin sensitivity. Um, bitter melon is one of those plants, for example. Um, there's a fabulous fiber, three uh three kinds of fiber and they sell in the stores called PGX that improves insulin sensitivity. Fenugreek powder improves insulin sensitivity. Um, Cinnamon a little bit maybe, chromium a little bit. Um, So we would really focus on this improving insulin sensitivity issue. Partly that means a big conversation around food and exercise because, again, we're not just trying to lower calories. We're trying to change the physiology. We're not just trying to burn calories with exercise. We're actually trying to increase muscle mass and improve insulin sensitivity with the exercise. Um, There are also some of my colleagues that talk about the sort of intracellular metabolism and, and providing more ATP with production like with coenzyme Q10, uh, things like that almost... Uh, helping the intracellular metabolism, resveratrol, coenzyme Q10. That, those are sort of unproven areas, but but interesting thinking areas uh, that I think some people really, really benefit from. So think improving insulin sensitivity, that's sort of the key in, a, in perimenopause and menopause around weight. Great um, answer. All right. All right. This is uh, Allison. She wants to know, my mom, and you kind of already touched on this a little bit, my mom would love to know what to do about the hot flashes. She hasn't found anything that works yet. So we don't know what she's used. Yeah, I don't know what she's tried. Um, And so since I don't know what she's tried, I would try a standardized extract of black cohosh in a pill, 40 milligrams twice a day, and give it one month. And if there's no change after a month, then move on to something else. Another product. Can I mention an exact product, uh, Lauren? Oh, of course. Yeah, go for it. Uh, 
is called Feminescence, which is a maca extract of a made by a particular company, and they've done the they actually uh, have the most concentrated maca product and research to demonstrate its efficacy, and that's uh, two capsules twice a day. But some, you know, there are, you know, maybe ten to twenty five percent of women who are going to need estrogen for mm-hmm. their for their symptoms, and her mother may be one of them. I, I don't know. Okay, and I love that about you too. Is it's like you're you're not just so you know holding tightly to herbal medicine. It's like you know you're going to use what works. But the beauty of the herbal medicine is there's so much that does work. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. This yes. question is from Eric. He wants to know um, how does Dr. Hudson feel about less traditional perimenopausal supplements like DIM or Vitex. Well, DIM is not going to help any symptom that I'm aware of. It's really based on a on the concept of that DIM could in, uh, in alter the metabolism of the estrogen that the body produces, such that we produce different metabolites uh, and more what are called the friendlier estrogen metabolites and less of the unfriendly. But to my knowledge, you you can't count on that for any menopause, any relief of any particular menopause symptom. And chase tree berry, if you look at the, any research on chase tree berry and menopause symptoms, it doesn't work unless there have then unless we have a perimenopausal woman who also has PMS, and then chase tree berry can be effective. And like I said, breast tenderness is where the bulk of the chase tree berry research. But I would not look to chase tree berry for perimenopause, hot flashes, mood swings, any any of that. Okay. And this question is from Maya on Twitter, and she wants to know how early is too early for menopause and what might that look like? Yeah. So by definition, premature menopause, also called medically premature ovarian failure, is before the age of 40. And if you're menopausal before the age, well, if you've stopped menstruating, we need to know why. And it's a, you know a series of of a history and physical exam and tests to, to, to determine that. And some of the time, that might be premature ovarian failure. But there are other causes that are more common in a younger woman of why she's not menstruating anymore. If you're 41, that's early but not technically premature. Uh, so it's on the earlier end of things. And this is where some women kind of get a disservice from their practitioner if their practitioner, if their practitioner isn't a great menopause doctor. And plenty of clinicians are great doctors but not great menopause doctors. Like if someone were to come to me with prostate problems, a guy were to come to me, I would be a lousy doctor for for him, um, because that's not you know I know I you know can barely remember where the prostate is, but you know that <laughs> just because of my area of expertise. So this is true of menopause. There's great doctors, but they're not great menopause doctors. And one of the ways I've seen this manifest is women in their early 40s come with. Their periods are changing, they're depressed, they're not sleeping, they're hot, and the doctor says, oh, you can't, this can't be perimenopause, you're too young. Or here's your blood test, says your estrogen levels are just fine. Well, remember what we talked about earlier. They drew their blood on Wednesday. It doesn't matter what it is on Wednesday. It's uh, that blood test. She's 
early 40s, she's clearly having perimenopause symptoms. We could make sure she's not hypothyroid and make sure, you know, something doesn't have diabetes, but if she has hot flashes and mood swings and irregular bleeding, it's probably perimenopause. Got it. Yep, and you are that expert. That's why I have you on the show. <laughs> you know, you. Well, there, so and there are a lot of there are there are there are a lot there are other experts out there. And hopefully oh yeah, there's for one sure, that, for yeah. sure. And they'll probably have them at some point. I'm just starting off with you because I thought that you'd yeah. be the best. <laughs> you know, there's there's something that's really controversial out there nutrition wise, and that is um, soy. You know, I've heard oh, the negatives no. about it being genetically modified. I know we have to touch on it. We have to. About it being genetically modified and how it can, you know, throw off hormones and this and that. Now, I know that you actually do support soy for some people, so I want to know your kind of your philosophy on that. Yeah. For most people, mm-hmm. you know, soy is a food, or at least that's what it's, you know, I mean, obviously we have soy and some other forms of it, but this is just a bean. It's a bean. It's a little old bean, like pinto beans and kidney beans and black beans. It's just a bean. Now, how is that bean being delivered? And traditional soy foods, soy milk, tempeh, tofu, edamame, those for most people, even in our culture, are going to be fine. They're not only fine, I would consider them medicinal foods, the ability to reduce the risk of some significant diseases. Um, it's the, the 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 variation gets into is it been genetically modified? We could argue about that. Is it organic or not? We could argue, we could have a conversation about that. Um, is it a immensely altered from its original natural state. Well, the foods I listed are not. The traditional soy foods have been around for generations in cultures all around the world. But what about, you know, tofu hot dogs and tofu this and tofu that? Now we're getting to be a pretty highly manufactured food item, just like other highly manufactured food items. They're they should be eaten, you know, sparingly or not at all, you know, uh, just mm-hmm. because, you know, they have simple sugars, they, uh, uh, they're they not like, it's not like whole grain, it's like the white bread of soy. Um, so those aren't the kinds of soy foods I'm talking about. Um, most people, most women, soy foods, the traditional soy foods are safe, they're safe with everybody, but mostly they're not only safe, they're a good thing. They're medicinal. They're medicinal, healthy foods, great sources of monounsaturated fats, uh, complex carbohydrates, proteins. It's a great food. Now, if you're allergic to soy, well, then don't eat it. If you have trouble digesting it, you get gas and bloating, well, then you know you have a particular problem with that food, just like you might have with strawberries or bananas or or something else, but those are rare. Those are not. Those are not so. Those are not the norm. Those are not the usual people. Soy does not interfere with thyroid hormone in a pill. On very, 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 very rare occasion, soy can 
inhibit the production of thyroid hormones such that it might be problematic. But I've been practicing for 27 years. I haven't seen one of those people yet, not to say that they don't exist. But mostly that problem has been solved because soy products, we have enough iodine or soy comes with some iodine or the soy milk comes with some iodine. So that problem has been averted. Um, but if you have, but I would say by and large, most of us should not be afraid of soy. Soy does not cause cancer. If anything, it reduces the risk of cancer, including breast cancer. Um, it does not cause cancer. It does not increase the risk of cancer. Even now, the research in the last couple of years of women with a history of breast cancer, soy is not only safe, it might even actually reduce your risk of recurrence by a little bit. There you have it. That's I love the, to hear the, the other two, side. That's, yeah, that's the too long short answer. No, I like it. I like it because I hear so much. And um, I certainly know there are people that it. have divergent, you know, points of view. But I would say that's one of my concerns: is it's a point of view, and usually those people that have a that are on the extreme other end of what I just mentioned are not really relating the science as a whole. They're relating an opinion that's outside of what the scientific research says in total. Mm-hmm. Got it. I love it. Dr. Hudson, this time has flown by. Is there anything <laughs> you, else that you want to um, make sure you mention to the listeners? Anything else? I think my the callers who are on the line are shy. I see people on the switchboard, and they're, they're afraid to ask questions. <laughs> they get so scared. Did I intimidate them? I no, I don't to. think so. People just get afraid about being on the air. I see. Uh, No, I would say, uh, you know, be careful out there. Take care of yourself. Enjoy enjoy each day. Enjoy Thanksgiving with your friends and family and loved ones and, and try to have some fun in your life. That's what I would say. Sounds good to me. That's what I'm going to do. What, where can our okay. listeners learn more about you? Pardon? Where can where? our listeners learn more about you? Yeah, your website. Uh, well, there's stuff. the www.drtor... Dr. Dr. What is it? DrHudson.com? I think that's what it says. <laughs> or DrToriHudson.com. I can't even remember now. Um, it's DrToriHudson.com. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, and then there's my book, The Women's Encyclopedia of Natural Medicine. Um, those, and you know, I, I do formulate products uh, for Vitanica, women's health products. So www.vitanica. Uh, those are the three main places. I have a clinic in Portland, but that's a long ways away for most people. <laughs> Yeah, probably. All right, well, Dr. Hudson, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. It was a lot of fun, and you have a great Thanksgiving. All right, Dr. Noel, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye. All right, you guys, thanks so much for all your questions. Eric and Allison, and who else asked questions? Maya, and I think there was a couple others. Appreciate you guys listening and continuing to tune in. Definitely uh, check out Dr. Tori's website, drtorihudson.com. It's T-O-R-I, by the way. It's how you spell Tori. And get her book. I don't care if you're a doctor or not. This is a great book to have in your um reference here she talks about heart disease and diabetes and menstrual conditions and all kinds of stuff pertaining to women's health so it's a great reference to have next week's show will be kevin gianni of the health renegade so tune into that that'll be next tuesday same time and check me out drlaurennoel.com free consultations and i will check you guys later have a great thanksgiving thanks so much bye-bye North Pole Hotline. Help! 
My in-laws are hosting Thanksgiving, and we're bringing the dressing. You mean stuffing? No, dressing. I need cute outfits for everyone. Get to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy's kicking off the holidays with stylish denim, velvet tops, the season's best dresses, and 40% off your entire purchase now through Tuesday. 40% off? We'll be stuffing our shopping bags full. And don't forget colorful sweaters and amazing outerwear, too. You can even buy online and pick up in store for free. Ooh, I love an all-you-can-wear buffet. Holiday your heart out at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Ballot 1118-1120. Exclusion supply. See stores for details. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10.